You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today we're talking to Raj Nathan, founder at Startup Hype Man, about building your story stack. Storytelling has always been something that's been interesting to me because you, know, you hear people that are really great storytellers, and I don't know about you, I've always wondered, you know, how do they tell such a great story? How are they so entertaining? You know, when you watch movies and people tell great stories, you wonder, you know, how did they build that? And it wasn't until I started following some of Donald Miller's stuff, actually, over at StoryBrand, which is a really good resource I recommend checking out, that I realized there was a framework behind stories. And he talks about it more from a marketing perspective. And what I'm excited to talk about Raj today, our guest, is he has a really good storytelling framework that can be applied to a sales format as well. So your prospecting emails, what you say in cold calls, your demo decks, that sort of stuff. And the reason why I wanted Raj on is he's not only a good friend, but he's also worked with a lot of really great SaaS companies and helped a lot of uh, account executives, SDRs, that sort of stuff with their storytelling and how they demo. So one of the things we're going to dig into is how to be a better storyteller. So what is a story? What's the framework behind it? Uh, he's going to talk about the key elements of what he calls a story stack. So how to take essentially what's an elevator pitch and repurpose that for different formats. And the other thing that we're going to dig into that was really unexpected was demo decks. So this same storytelling format applies to your demo decks. And whether or not you have a lot of control over the content in the demo deck, you likely have control over the order in which you go over things and how you talk about things and how you engage the prospect. So he's got some really good tips there. So before you go and check that out, I do have some news I want to share with you. We just launched an online community and course, and it's really cool. We're letting the first 100 people in for just $9.99 a month because uh, the goal is to make this training, especially the online you know, format, as affordable as possible for the time being. So make sure to check that out at blissfulprospecting.com. There's a button right there in the menu called join the community. And what you're going to find in there is the ability to, you know, really be in a place where you can connect with other like-minded salespeople that are having similar prospecting challenges that you might be having. The other thing that you're going to find there is a course with three plus hours of premium content on everything from how to rewrite your cold emails to developing talk tracks to coaching calls that you can listen to. We're going to be doing weekly and monthly calls in there as well. So make sure to check that out, blissfulprospecting.com. Go to the menu, click on join the community, and let's get into the interview. So I was uh, before we started recording this interview, I was thinking about when I was doing research, uh, the first time that we met. And it was really funny because every time we tell the story, it like I didn't even know who you were at the time. And then you live in Chicago, you show up at my house and we record a <laughs> podcast and I end up talking about some really like deep shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, but one of the things that always stuck out to me is you've always had a knack for, uh, just telling good stories. And in the business that you were running at that time was really about like ideas. And I've always known you to be someone that's pretty creative. So how did that get started, man, before you got into like what you're doing right now and, and sales and marketing and storytelling, and all this other stuff, were you into this stuff? Like when you were a kid, I think my brain has always gravitated towards the concept of story. Yeah. In the sense that I, I definitely like from like a younger age was like really into the idea of marketing. I know that for sure. How young? Um, probably like, 
and, and the idea of it being a business thing, probably like middle school. But even like before that, I remember in like elementary school getting really excited when like there was this project of like create, you know, like create like a poster board of like an advertisement or a product you, you would make something like that. You know, like I, I loved like when I got assigned that kind of a project. Um, I remember in like fourth grade, we had to do a little like poster board, uh, like promoting recycling. And, and this is also before I was a rapper. I, I, I wrote on the board, like part of the part of the little like poster board was a rewrite of Mo Money, Mo Problems, but it was like Mo Trash, Mo Problems or something like that or more garbage, more problems. <laughs> Your poster board was like a vision board. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> with your lyrics on it dude um, how about that uh but you know like it was like that and and you know i always tell people this and they can take it whatever direction they want but you I mean you know because we've talked we've known each other for a few years now but like i've always been a huge pro wrestling fan mm-hmm. when i was a kid i liked it still watch it um and because it was always just this idea of a story right and and sometimes i'll tell like my clients or, or people i'm prospecting like if i get on the phone with them the way I look at your company or your brand is like as a wrestler, because a wrestler's job, like the, the wrestler's only job is make a connection with the audience. Either get me to, like, I need you to boo me if I'm a bad guy. I need you to cheer me if I'm a good guy. And a wrestler fails and doesn't make it very far in their career if they cannot elicit a reaction out of the audience. And that I feel like is, you know, fast forward all the way now is like, that's what I do is figure out how to get reactions from their audience. Wow. Okay. So we could take this conversation in a lot of different ways, man. Um, I have to ask you though, marketing. So you're thinking about marketing when you're in fourth grade and middle school, did you have I mean, parents like, or some, did you know someone that was in, I didn't even, I don't even think know what marketing was. I think I, I just thought school. about it as like advertising at that point. Okay. Um, like the idea of like commercials or like posters or whatever, or, ad, or ads. Um, I, I don't think I knew about it as like a business thing in fourth grade, but definitely in like middle school, I remember thinking about the idea of like marketing and I remember like talking with like one of my close friends, like, Oh yeah, we could open up like our own marketing company. And we had this idea for like a door with like our name on it. And what would we, we would just like combine our two names and be like, whatever, like nay, John, like a combination of our last names, like Nate, the John, uh, (laughs) industries or something like that. And then like in like high school is when I really started to formalize. Um, yeah. And definitely, in um i i remember like my english teacher i think junior year of high school when we were like taking the act sats and all that and she was you know and they start to like have those tests that recommend what field you should go into mm-hmm. mine like the three or four tests they gave us mine would always come back as like marketing or advertising and i remember my english teacher being like oh yeah i could totally picture you like coming up with the fun jingle or whatever that might be and you know what a really funny thing is is a couple of years ago, I was cleaning out my bedroom at my parents' house and like I found my fifth grade report card. And in fifth grade, you didn't really get like real grades on things. You just got like e satisfactory or, or yeah, was, exactly. Yeah. Or exceed yeah, E or yeah. S or fails to meet expectations. Yeah. Um, and my grades are always like fine, but there's also this section where the teacher would write like a little like comment about you, like, like a, a one paragraph like blurb about how you performed that quarter. And the teacher wrote like it was, it was the fourth quarter of fifth grade. And then we would transition to middle school, which is a different school where I grew up. So she wrote like Rajiv really needs to think about how much he's talking. Uh, if he continues to talk so much with people, 
It's going to be it's going to be a big problem when he reaches middle school. And then I'm I'm like reading that like literally like while I'm also I think I was like simultaneously cleaning my room and then like in the background like half-assedly editing one of my podcast episodes. And I'm like, huh, how about that? I ended up kind of making a profession around talking. <laughs> Dude, that's really funny. So <laughs> when did the, because you said that things started to kind of formalize in your mind in high school, when did the framework for a story become obvious to you? Because, well, let's just start with that, actually. And then I, I, we might take this a whole nother different direction than I thought, actually. When did you start to realize what the framework was behind these like pro wrestlers and the stories or like when you were watching a movie, you're like, oh, I, I, I can see and predict like what's going on here. Uh, I think I, I cannot tell you if I knew what the framework was, but I think I started to see like that there was a framework yeah. or and I think it probably came back around like it probably started to come to me around late high school because I had gone on like a four year hiatus of not watching wrestling. And then I got back into it and I was like, oh, now I see how it all comes together. Like, oh, like I can see that they're going to turn this guy bad pretty soon. Like that kind of thing. Uh, granted, you still get surprised in wrestling, but and that's that's awesome when you do get surprised and they totally like pull the wool over your eyes. But, you know, I started to not only see like between how they talk on the microphone and how do they like make a point and make it sell hard, like sell hard their point. But also there's something in wrestling called match psychology, which is the actual like grappling with the other person in the ring and the fighting. How do you like match psychology is how do you build up the match in a way that it actually has its own story flow to it? So there's some tension. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And like if, if, if the good guy is the guy who needs to win, the good guy cannot start off and, and just be on the offensive the entire match and just win. Cause then there's nothing that there's nothing that that person prevailed over. Yeah. Right. So oftentimes if the good guy needs to win, the the bad guy will come out right out of the gate and beat the crap out of out of the other person. And then it'll look like the bad guy's gonna win. And the, the good guy will get a few punches in, but then the bad guy will come back on him. And then the good guy, you know, and then you it makes you like have to start rooting for the good guy by the end of the match. Uh, see that's I mean, one quick comment on what you said at the very beginning of that the fact that you were starting to see this at the end of high school is really interesting to me because until I read story brand by Donald Miller, I think it is, this was like last year, dude, I didn't really understand story frameworks. <laughs> I didn't understand. Like when I watch a movie now, I, I can kind of predict and uh, Sarah, who, you know, my, my wife, I, she always knows she's like, Oh, this is so predictable is what she always says when she's watching a TV show or a movie. And I'm like, Oh, how, how did you know that? You know, I did, I never even see that kind of stuff coming, <laughs> but uh so, and also this pro wrestling thing, you're the only person that I can talk to about it. That is actually, that it's actually interesting to me because there's so much going on behind the scenes that someone like me, that's just watching, doesn't really realize. So with our business, how does this connect to when we're telling a story in a sales context or our business is trying to come up with like what our story is for our business? How do we connect with people? Do, and do you want to be the good guy? Do you want to be like, how do, where do you even start? How is it related to wrestling? So to, to the, come back to the base point, right? Every wrestler, every individual wrestler is, is their own brand. And yeah. their, the job of their brand is to connect with the audience, make an emotional connection. Um, I think in business, you should all kind of, we should all strive to more or less be the good guy, right? Because mm -hmm. um, the, the, the role of the bad guy is to ultimately put over the good guy. 
like make the good guy look better at the end of the day. Um, so if you're so the, bad the bad guy, guy means- like is the bad guy status quo then or something, or like what could happen if you don't take care of the thing that I can help you? Like, is there a it bad guy? Be. A part of me is like the bad guy is actually <laughs> your competitor doing a terrible job and therefore making you look better. <laughs> like, oh. uh, but I think, you know, if we, if, if you're trying to be the good guy here or make the connection with your audience, there's a couple of like, I don't necessarily want to say like tropes, but a couple of like, uh, just like themes that I like to carry through with this. It is, um, as business people, we have to stop thinking like executives or entrepreneurs or salespeople and start thinking like entertainers. Cause just like wrestlers, the entertainer goal is performing is, is elicit a reaction, create an emotional connection with the audience. And, um, you know, sometimes when I do workshops, I'll say this, if you think of like, like you really like Van Halen, right? Oh yeah. Right. So if you think of like Van Halen, let's say they go play in Madison square garden or you're in Austin. I don't even know what the live venue is in Austin. I don't even know either. I haven't been to any <laughs> concerts here yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll just, we'll, well, we'll go back to when you were in Portland. Let's take the Rose Garden, right? Uh, it's actually the Moda Center now. I think sorry, the Moda Center. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we'll take the Moda. Okay. Let's use Madison Square Garden. Right, <laughs> yeah. Let's use Madison Square Garden. Yep. <laughs> so in, if Van Halen's playing Madison Square Garden, they aren't coming out on stage and being like, all right, how's everyone doing tonight? Yeah, we're doing good. Okay, great. Well, tonight we're going to play every song that's ever been in our catalog, not just the ones that were released, but all the B-sides and then the working drafts too that we didn't get to finish because we kind of ran out of time, but we like the way they sounded, but we're not really sure if you like them or not. And we're, it's going to take about 20 hours to get through it all. Who's with us? And they're my right? favorite band and I would love a, like behind the you know backstage experience in terms of getting to meet everyone, but I wouldn't want to see them play for more than a couple hours. Right, you want the hits, right? You want yeah. the you want the stuff that you're like, oh, I love this song, right? And so that's kind of the idea is like your favorite band, like they go on stage, they have a set list, and yeah, they improvise on the spot, right? They might have that unplanned guitar solo because they know they're feeding off the energy of the crowd and they add it in there, but they kind of know the format of what they're going to do. And they're, they, they construct a set list in a way where they're like, how do we get these people to leave this arena? Like buzzing about what just happened. And that means they have to, I mean, it's crazy to say entertainers have to like do put their ego aside, but they do because they don't bother with the stuff that's just important to them that they think you need to hear. Cause it's important to them. Right. They just, they, they stick to, how do I make this person feel really good about themselves? Dude, I mean, I already see the parallels with doing a, a software demo. How do people approach demos? They, they look at it like, I'm going to show you our entire catalog right now. We're going to go through every B-side. I mean, that, I love that analogy because that's how most people do a demo. They don't focus on the hits, what people are actually going to write, like what the biggest two or three pieces of value connected to the features that you need to show that like to focus on those. Right. So, yeah. um, okay, let's, I want to make this as practical as we can for, uh, for anyone listening, that's in a sales you know, type of role. We could start with that because you do a lot of really cool work with SaaS companies, especially, um, if we're thinking about prospecting and how we tell our story in an email or over the phone, I'm assuming it has to be one, two, three sentences, like something kind of short. Like how do we even get started with something like that? And I know you have this thing that you 
have called story stacking. So maybe that's a part of it, but where, where do we kind of start when it comes to telling the story of, of what we do as a salesperson? Yeah. So the idea of the story stack, I don't know if I call it story stacking, but like it, it's like someone has like a tech stack. I, oh, I think story companies stack. need to have it, okay. right? They need to have a story stack. And so a story stack is this combination of your messaging and your, your, your messaging across sales and marketing. So that includes like, okay, what's your sales deck? What's your demo call strategy? Um, what's your like company's origin story and how does that infuse into what you're doing? What are your outbound scripts, right? Or, or the messages that need to go into your outbound. Those are all part of a story stack. Content can be part of a story stack. Now, if you're prospecting here, I actually have like very counterintuitive advice on this, which probably, it, it probably runs against a lot of what you advise, but I think that's okay. We can have different opinions. Um, yeah, that's okay, dude. <laughs> it's okay for us to disagree. <laughs> no, we have to agree on every, okay. Uh, which is the emails that I write when I prospect myself. And then in cases where my clients want me to put together some emails for them, they're actually kind of long, but they're, they're long with purpose. Um, so I'll tell you like, for example, like some of my most successful emails were probably like, I want to say like a dozen lines, maybe more than that. Um, and, and each line was like one to two sentences. So somewhere between like 12 and 24 sentences long. Um, but they're composed in a way that make you, it's almost like you can't avoid reading the next sentence because it's telling a mini story. Mm-hmm. And that story, you know, the, the general flow of it, and here's where I think it, it aligns well with your reply method. You know, you know, from like years ago, the, the format I've I created for an elevator pitch is K-Pasa problem, approach, solution, action. And I think that same format applies into an email because that's basically what it is. It's your elevator pitch, but you just add some detail around it. So it's like, it's like, like so it's like <laughs> personalization, situation, problem, approach, solution, proof, action step. Mm-hmm. And again, like my most successful emails, and I say successful in terms of like either the response I got from it or the deal that it turned into being a high volume or high value deal, um, they have followed like that longer format. And again, it comes back to if you're telling something with purpose and intention, people will want to, and, and it resonates with them, right? That emotional connection. If it resonates with them, they want to keep reading it because they, with every line that passes, they're like, wow, this person, they know what they're talking about. They get me. Wow, they get me. Oh my God, they get me. Holy crap. We should probably talk to them. Right? So, you know, for example, like companies where they've had me write these scripts, you know, it, if, if the sale is a demo call, great. Like people want to take that demo and they're more informed when they start the demo. I think you can get a higher quantity of responses with really short emails, but they're not necessarily as qualified when they like in, in their response versus if you, if you do a longer email with purpose and intention, you'll get a lower volume. Your outreach will be much lower, like the volume of outreach. The responses won't be as big, but the ones who do reply with interest, they're like the most qualified you could possibly have. Cause you know, you've like, you've a hundred percent K 
captured their current scenario? Yeah. So this is really interesting because with length of emails, I typically recommend three to five sentences, but that's because I'm not as, I'm not as talented of a storyteller, especially through written word as someone like yourself. And I think most reps are probably not great at that either, <laughs> unless they have something that's kind of a copy and paste, you know, kind of thing that they can use and then personalize for themselves. So I, yeah, for me, it's always been about the quality podcasts. If it's three hours long, I don't give a shit. If it's really good, I'll listen to it. I'll come back to it. And it might take me a month to listen to it, you know? So I like that. Let's, let's dig into like, what, how do we come up with our story stack? And let's think really practically from a rep that might not have, like their company might not have done this really well for them. I'm assuming that's what you see in a lot of your work too, right? Where people come in and there's not like a really clear story. What can you do as a, as a rep and like someone like doing this type of outbound work, where would you even start with coming up with your story? So I, yeah, I think you start small and then you build out from there. So uh, I kind of alluded to it before, but like, what's your company's elevator pitch? Like figure out that first. Like, like can you soundbite what you do? Cause that's going to be a really good barometer of do you as a rep or does your t- if you're the leader, does your team, do they really know what they're selling? Right. Cause it, I mean, if you have an hour with someone, you've got a pretty good playground to like, just talk through everything possible and just figure out what lands with them. Right. But if you've got 30 seconds or 60 seconds, that's where that's like, to me is like a really true test of does, does this rep know what this company really sells? And I mean, that in the sense of like, do they know the value of what we sell? Not just functionally, what are all the things that we do? So that I think is the best starting point. And again, my, my formula for that is K-PASA, problem, approach, solution, action. Action meaning call to action um, or ask. From there... What's... Uh, I was talking yeah. there because uh, this... Because uh, I'm a little fuzzy on ele- what an elevator pitch should be. Let's spend some time here real quick, if that's cool with you, man. And like, let's go through this problem, approach, solution, action... Can we use a, what would be an appropriate, maybe an example of a software to use? And let's kind of go through so people can hear like what that sounds like, because this is something I could actually work on quite a bit too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so selfishly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So why don't we use, um, we'll just use like one of my clients from uh, over the past few years. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so FanFood's got, you know, they have a different pitch depending on the audience, right? There's like, and they're a marketplace company. So they have end users, but they also have businesses who buy from them. Mm-hmm. Um, businesses are live event and like sports stadiums and sports teams. So their product functionally is in-seat. If you're at a game or a concert, in-seat delivery of your concession foods and your, your beer. Um, or you could go pick it up from an express line. Now, that value prop is different for, say, like, um, selling to, like, the Chicago Bears versus they found actually a lot of success in selling to high schools. Oh, like concession right? stands and stuff exactly, like that. Exactly, like for yeah. football games. Because those lines are super long. Um, and there's a lot of parents there who, like, they, they go to the game to see their kid play. But if they need to eat food they miss like a full quarter because the lines are like 25 minutes long 
So the buyer in that market is the athletic director. All right. Now, what we know, and this is through some firsthand research, through some conversations, um, and through some like informal inter- or informational interviews, what we knew was that the athletic director is like running around with their hair on fire all the time. Like for a job that seems like it's pretty cool, they are constant. Like, like the worst thing for them is Monday morning when they've got like twelve voicemails from angry parents from like, "Why didn't my kid get playing time over the weekend?" To Man. the concession stand uh, volunteer being like, "Oh my god!" Like we ran out of Reese's by like the first quarter. What the hell? Um, to emails in their inbox where the co- you know the basketball coach is asking for new uniforms, the softball coach needs new bats, right? There's like, and then also they have to like go to like the conference like meeting athletic director meeting like that night so they've got a million things on their plate so the problem for them is hey like as an athletic director you you like you have a million things on your plate from x to y you know from kids complaining from parents complaining about playing time to equipment needs the list goes on and on um and 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 concessions and you know running concessions is one of them um, that's the problem. The approach is just like a nice little, like sexy one liner that bridges you to the solution, which is where you talk about like the true value or the, like what, what your thing is and how it helps. So in their case, and I'm going off the top, I don't remember exactly how we created it. So just bear with me. But, um, you know, that the problem is what I said it was then the approach is fan food takes concessions off your plate solution uh we've got a mobile ordering platform where you know parents and and all the fans in attendance can just uh while they're still in the bleachers can pick what they want and you can just leave a bag out there ready for pickup um it creates incremental revenue which drives more for your booster fundraising action um you know are you interested do you want to meet yeah Right. And so again, I don't remember the exact words of it because it was about a year, a year, a little over a year ago when I created, helped them create this, but that was the general gist of it. Um, and what you're creating within that is a logical flow of information. Hey, here's what you're experiencing today. Here's what we can do about it. Here's what we do about it. And here's like, here's what that actually means to you value wise at the end of the day. And then you yeah. fill in, and then you fill in the details with like, we're already working with these other high schools in the state or in in the county. Uh, so then you create a little bit of social proof and and like, oh man, if those co- schools are doing it, we should probably do it. Uh, and then at the front, have some personalization, like, hey, awesome win over over your rival last Friday night. I love this. I mean, this fits the reply method pr- pretty closely, actually. Yeah. So the. Uh... The problem. Can you t- talk a little bit more about w- what do you think is a practical thing? Uh, this is the thing I see missing most is lack of empathy for the problem. And people have very little understanding and we're dealing with cr- uh, coronavirus right now too, which we haven't even brought up yet. Uh, where do you think that where in your line of work, do you see people missing the boat with the problem? Like where are you having to come in and help the most? Cause this and what we do is missing almost entirely every time with every company that we work with. It's really just light vanilla. 
like surface level problems, like you're not making as much money as you'd like. It's so generic. And like what you talked about just now is what we describe as situational challenges where it's so specific. Yeah. That person's going to be like, oh, wow, they definitely understand what's going on in my world. What do you see in your line of work when you're coming in to just say, and what would you advise to a, a rep that might not have very much empathy because they haven't done the job before their company's not really explaining who their prospects are? Well, I think, I mean, advice is do the research, right? I mean, could we... I'm always like, yeah, you can churn out a hundred emails, but if they all suck, what does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's a lot of wasted time okay. too. Yeah. Versus like 10 really targeted emails where like when you send it, you're like, you're almost like, I know they're going to respond to that. You know, it's kind of like when you, I don't know if you ever had this, but like there were tests in high school where like I studied for them and I took the test and I walked out being like, I know I got an A versus yeah. walking out being like, I hope I got an A. And every time when I hoped I got an A, I probably got a B. <laughs> or a C versus when mm. I knew I got an A is when I got the A because you were just like, you went in prepared more or less. Yeah. So that's the same kind of notion here. Um, where I think people are missing the boat on this is either zero framing of a problem whatsoever and just mm-hmm. jumping straight into here's we our solution. This. Here's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we help, you know, we help fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, increase fit workplace productivity and decrease. Right. There's just no context to it. Um, and then the other thing I'll see is if they do put a problem, they they frame the problem in the context of not having their solution. Mm. So if that's unclear, what I mean by that is the wrong way to go about this is to say, hey, uh, you know, we know your company doesn't have our software. Like that's not a problem, you know, like, like more or less, like that's what people will do. Yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. So it, it's not about not having your software is the problem. The problem is whatever they're facing today that in some way or another, your problem could, could help them alleviate pain or, or, or acquire gain or whatever that might be. The other aspect too, that I really, I, I've found success time and time again with both myself and with my clients is um, the phrase I use is displace the problem across the market. So what I mean is I could email you, Jason. So like, let me ask you this, like just legitimately, like what's a, what's a product you could conceivably be in the market for right now? A product. Well, we would like to use a new sales engagement platform from what we're using okay. right now. Yep. Okay. So that's like finding leads and, and generating like like the emails, basically? Yeah, yeah. Running the outbound sequences, yep. Okay. Interesting. The person I just had on my podcast that I recorded right before this might be a good introduction for you then because that's what their company does. Yeah, who is it? <laughs> uh, it's AutoClose. Oh, uh, yeah. Sean, Sean Finder's Sean Finder. CEO. Yeah. yeah. The only thing is they don't do phone calls. There's, it's, just, uh, okay. it's just pure email. Got so. it. Okay. So anyways, so you're in the market for like sales engagement (laughs) software, right? So the wrong way to, to come, let's say I have the problem, right? Like I know what your problem is and I have it right. The wrong way to write it is to say, is to put in an email, Hey Jason, you're struggling with fine or, you know, you're struggling with getting the right data for your leads and having a solution that can do calls and emails all in one. So like I'm coming into that email telling you what's wrong with you. Yeah. And your likely reaction is going to be like, you don't know me. 
Yeah. Right? There's just like some defensive. ego that gets in the way. Yeah, you'll go on the yeah. defensive. Versus if you displace the problem across the market, the way you phrase it is to say, hey, Jason, uh, I've been talking with other, uh, with other business owners or you know, insert industry or vertical or whatever. I've been talking with other people who are just like you, more or less. They've been telling me they're having some challenges with X, Y, and Z. So now what I've done is frame up a problem by not saying, hey, you have this problem. I'm not saying you have the problem. I'm just saying there's other people who are kind of like you who are telling me they have this problem and maybe you can relate to them because that makes it okay. It does a couple of things. It makes it okay for you to admit that there's a problem if you see other people like you have a problem. It doesn't accuse you. Therefore, you're not going to go on the defensive. And on top of that, it, um, it creates social proof and lets you know that I'm not some outsider like tapping on the glass trying to get in. Like, hey, I'm in this game with you because I'm talking to people who are just like you. So it creates this like I'm an insider mentality. Dude, I love that concept. I love that you call it displacing the problem across the market because, uh, yeah, this is something when people start to get the hang of talking about the problem, you're totally right. They talk to you about it and it's the equivalent equi- uh, equ- equivalence of equivalence. I don't think that's equivalent. (laughs) It's the equivalent. Yeah. Of a personal trainer approaching. If you have weight to lose and saying, Hey, uh, looks like you have some weight to lose. (laughs) It looks like you could use personal trainer. Um, so I love that. I just want to highlight that because that's a huge, huge, uh, thing that's very subtle actually in like the actual wording, but makes a huge difference in how the person's going to, going to receive it. So I like this man. So Problem, approach, solution, action. And yeah. that is that the first part of like the story stack is having this elevator pitch that really that sounds like it can be repurposed for a cold email. You could put that into a, a, your cold call. Like when you talk about what you do, it, mm-hmm. you could use that on your LinkedIn. I mean, it seems like you could use that across the board in almost every prospecting context. Yeah, it's um, if you start there, everything else just becomes easier because yeah. you know what you're, you know, the core message you're pulling from. Yeah. You'll have to modify it a little bit for a call versus an email, like an email. You'll have to add some like personal detail to it. Yeah. Um, the call to action will be a little bit different, obviously in an email versus your ask on a phone, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Those things, those, those fringe details will change. But if you have a core message you're pulling from, you're not like having to start from scratch every single time you go to do an outbound activity. And then it also ends up serving as the core of the sales deck, right? To me, like the, a sales deck is pretty much just built around problem approach solution, but you have to create a larger story and framework around problem approach solution. And if you have the elevator pitch down, then you know you're, you're reinforcing the core message instead of thinking like, oh, what's, what is the value prop we're trying to come up with here? How do we get that across in these slides? So do you with the companies you're working with that might solve multiple problems in a really big way, do they have multiple elevator pitches for that? Or cause you mentioned something earlier too, where they have different elevator pitches depending on like the type of, yeah, usually depending on market. Right. Yeah. So you have to know, like, like let's say you are selling multiple products. Um, your, I, I would say to look for, look at it this way first. Um, be aligned under the problem as opposed to your products. So 
which is funny because that's the exact opposite way of most <laughs> sales teams how they approach it. The whole sales training for a new hire is usually about their product. It's product training. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's product, product training. training. <laughs> so like, let's say you have multiple products. If you know that, let's say, let's say they, they multiple products solve a common problem. You, you're going to, in your outreach, focus more on the problem and just all you have to say about your, this is like, this part pisses me off, man. Like now I'm getting animated is, you know, I told you at the beginning, like I write super long emails that get responses, but you know what? Like two of those 20 sentences are actually about anything that I do. The rest yeah. of it is just about them and, and, and what's important to them. All you have to do is just tease. Hey, we have something that we, we have a solution for this. Do you want to hear more about it? Right. So that's how you so, create the tension that you were talking about earlier too, that is so key with pro wrestling is like, dude, you don't have to, like when you dump your entire product and all the information about it, there's no mystery. You're not even giving them a chance to say, so what do you do? Or so how can you help? Or can I get yeah. a better, another look at that? You know, you're not even giving yeah. them a chance to do that at all. I think we forget that the other person, I think we forget to give the other person credit that they have the ability to fill in blank, fill in the gaps themselves or be curious enough to want to learn more. So you'll get these emails that are, you know, like paragraphs long about our product does this. It also does this. By the way, it does this as well. And then there's nothing left to ask a question about. And if you didn't get it exactly right, then they're not going to be interested. Yeah. Versus if you're trying to pique curiosity, right? Now you, you say much less about your product. So to come back to your question of if you're selling multiple products, I think start with what problems do we solve for? And then what products align under these products? Let's say you have, not, like, let's say you have six products um, and three problems and two products per problem. So now you're positioning your stuff in a way that just continues to speak to the problem. And then you don't have to talk about the other four products you have. You can just mention, we have, we have these two things to address it. Do you want to talk? Yeah, this works really well when you're uh, selling something that's fairly complex too. There are some really complex, even like uh, software out there for SMBs because it's got so many different, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's got a CRM. You can do invoicing through it. You can do your bookkeeping, mm -hmm. you know, like all that stuff. So let's keep talking about the, the story stack. I, I love this stuff. So the elevator pitch is key. Sales decks, um, what's one or two uh, pointers or things that you see with sales decks that maybe maybe not a rep or like maybe a manager that might have a little more control over what's in the deck? Like, where do you see the uh, biggest mistakes? And like, what's what's a big tip that you can share? Because this is like kind of your thing. Yeah, is these sales okay. decks? Yeah, exactly. So I think there there's two versions here of like how I see it playing out. There's the, I think, completely uninformed, uneducated version, which is our sales deck is a highlight reel of our product, right? And it's like... I love your... The analogies you use are hilarious because when I think <laughs> of it like that, I'm like, oh God, it's it's a highlight reel uh, for like the uh, 500th best running back in the NFL. It's like, you don't even give a shit about it. You know what I mean? You're like, okay, <laughs> cool. That's a good, that's good. <laughs> you know, so it'll be like... Um, uh, slide one will be like uh, our clients, right? So it'll, it'll be like the logo roster. The Some people call it the NASCAR slide. Others call it like the logo salad. Slide two will be our products. Slide three will be our technology. So you're like, oh, we have great products. And then slide three is like, 
by the way, we have 99.9% uptime. We have these APIs and integrations. Slide four is the suits slide where you're like, oh, and our executive leadership has a combined 1,090 years of experience <laughs> in the business, right? Oh, and then by the way, here's a picture of our headquarters, right? Uh, and we have employees in these different offices. So that's like the totally uninformed way. Uh, and, and for those people, they're not telling a story at all. And then that presentation is entirely about them. It's not situational. When you talk to those clients, why do you think that they approach it like that? I, 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 I don't, it's a good question. Like, I'm like, why the fuck do people do it like that? That's is what I'm always wondering because it's so self-serving. It, it feels gross to me to go through a slide deck like that. But what do you, what do you like? What's your hunch? What do you think it is? I think it is because there's like this misinterpretation of the reason for the call. And, and people think the reason we're having this call is for you to look at our software or for you to like, look at what we're doing, which like to an extent, yes, but that's like a byproduct. The reason for the call is for them to understand how could you potentially be a value add to their business? Which start, which means like you probably got to do some discovery, right? Uh, and then to truly convey value add, you've got to tell a good story in that deck. And, and, I, and I, I almost like blame whoever like came up with the idea of the, the button that says click for demo or click to request demo. Yeah. Maybe it was like Oracle or Salesforce back in the day. Like everyone followed suit. And so because the button is labeled that, now everyone thinks the purpose of this call is to demo our software. <laughs> or, or that's what, that's what the bulk and of it, the time spent yeah. should be. And it doesn't set the salesperson up for success either. But uh, before I cut you off, what was that? You said, there was, uh, you said you see one angle where it's like very product yeah, so that, heavy. Yeah, that's What's, one angle. Yeah. The other angle is the more informed, like, hey, we are going like, to have a problem up front and then we're going to go into all this stuff. And, and I think a lot of people who do this probably read that really popular blog post on Medium that was titled The Greatest Sales Deck I've Ever Seen. Yep. And it was highlighting it. Zora's sales deck, right? So like people listening to this may have read that or heard of that. And so then I saw a ton of businesses like trying to copy that one, like, like almost verbatim. And you know what? That, that was a good sales deck. However, where I think that falls short or where people are falling short in an exact copy of that is diving in right away to this idea of the world is changing, right? It's almost like it's too dramatic of a, of a beginning. Yeah. So what I always like to do is, and, and, I, and I model sales decks. You may have heard me say this, but I model sales decks off of the Hamilton musical, which that's a whole nother episode of why I do that. But if you look at how they built the story in Hamilton, it is like the perfect model for how you should um, build a presentation. Interesting. And, so, so the first thing in a sales deck that I recommend is start by giving away the ending. Like, what's the big picture vision you have for them? A lot of people think like, no, we got to like tease this out, tease this out, tease this out. We can't like, then, then they'll be like amazed at what they see. Versus if you're like, if your first slide is like, hey, what we're trying to accomplish here is getting your company to a place where you are... Um, you know, you're not having to waste time on bad data. You're able to just automate as much as possible and then just focus your time on actually helping your clients and not dealing with software, right? So that's like a big picture vision slide up front. 
Because now you've made someone, you've, you've given them the destination and now there's a little bit of curiosity of, okay, I'm with you. How are we going to get there now? Then you can go into, not the world is changing, but you have to build up the world first. So create a scenario of how do things operate today as they know it? Because now what you're doing is gaining like agreement to something. And when you have agreement, it's easier to introduce that something should change. The other caveat I'll say is in building the world, I always like to not go right into business. So a lot of times if you build the world, you might be like, okay, currently your company's operating you know, in these three ways or companies like you operate in these three ways. Rather than that, before you get to that point, my microphone knocks over, uh, before you get to that point, Create a comparable scenario that has nothing to do with the business, but that they could reasonably agree to. So, for example, one company that I've worked with, um, who's, you know, one of their big value propositions is like end to end uh, attribution, like marketing attribution. Yep. So the introduction after the, after the vision, the introduction is, Hey, what if the Lion King ended with Mufasa dying? Okay. What if Shawshank Redemption ended with Andy Dufresne just still in prison? How would you feel? You'd probably feel incomplete, right? Well, that's actually how we see most marketing software operating today or most ad tech software operating today. It's incomplete. You're getting the beginning of the story and the middle but then you're not getting the end because you never know what the conversion rate is on advertisements. And it's all estimated impressions and not guaranteed impressions. It's, it's very similar to like Lion King ending in the middle. And you wouldn't, you'd probably be pretty mad if Lion King ended with Mufasa dying. Dude, I fucking love this, man. Uh, that's an email right there. That could be the first line of an email after <laughs> you personalize. What if Lion King ended with Mufasa dying? Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about it being in an email, but yeah. Dude, right. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I freaking love this. Like, what I'm already taking from this is, see, I love doing interviews like this because I get to, like, pick people's brains uh, yeah. in a way that's helpful for me, too. <laughs> uh, I like the giving away the <laughs> ending because I'm already thinking about how we need to adjust our deck a little bit and, like, frame the problem. Um, I love that part. And then how do things operate today? And instead of doing this, like, really dramatic before and after, you know, type of scenario using a really simple analogy. It sounds like to describe what it is that you can help with. Um, Cause they'll agree to that. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, if they don't agree now, you actually know up front, this probably is not a good lead. Should we actually yeah. continue this conversation? This is something you can do as a rep too. This is easily something oh, yeah. you can plug into a slide and come up with an analogy. Um, dude, let's keep rolling with the sales deck actually, because I think sure. that what this does when I have a better understanding of the sales deck in terms of the story that I'm telling and like how to frame it properly, all kinds of light bulbs start going off when you're prospecting. Cause you're mm -hmm. like, how can I do a really abbreviated version of this? Like the Mufasa and Lion King analogy, one liner in an email, dude, if that was the subject line in an email, I would definitely open it. I don't know about <laughs> you. Hey Raj, yeah, what, what, what would you think about if Mufasa uh, died or the ending of Lion King was Mufasa dying? I'd be like, huh, what's, what's this person up to? Uh, so yeah, let's keep going with the deck. What, sure. what are some other things that you see uh, with decks? And what are some other practical things that people should be doing 
to kind of switch up. And sure. by the way, I, okay. I keep going all over the place, but I just want to stress like, cause we have to acknowledge the coronavirus like kind of situation right now. Your yeah. story I think is going to be the difference. I think what we're going to get from this is in six months, however long it takes the businesses that are able to actually tell their story and really intimately talk about their customers problems and be able to frame it up and tee it up to their solution. Those are going to be the people that win. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, and I also think too, like one of the things you've been doing through this time is like posting a lot of helpful content for people throughout this. I think even if those people don't become customers today, um, some people are cowering away in fear right now. Others like you are like choosing to step up and be a voice. Even if you're saying I don't have all the answers, but here's what I'm thinking about at least. Here's what's on my mind. Here's... On the other side of this, when the curve flattens and when we ideally resume back to normal or as close to normal as possible, people are going to remember the people and the brands who did not give up during this time and that they were a voice they could rely on during this time. Um, and you know, who, who more or less were there for them. And that's, I mean, you can't get much better empathy than that. So, okay. So, but, but so given all that, do you want to go the direction of COVID discussion or continuing with the sales deck or, or even how should the sales deck modify? Let's do one modification for COVID in the sales deck. And that's probably all we got time for. Because sure. um, I, I just uh, I feel weird not talking about it, man. Because it, it it totally affects everything that we just talked about today is totally affected by it. Yeah. So I th- I guess let me take this from a little bit more like macro view as opposed to just the sales deck. Um, I think there's kind of there, there's two ways I've seen my clients go about it. One of them is, hey, we know you're not making decisions right now, and that's okay. We just want to make we we just want to like get a conversation going so that you can be prepared once the curve flattens and you can like go crush it coming out of this. And that's a really successful method to take. And, and you know, they're, they're getting meetings like that. Um, another path to take is helping the company through this um, and, and, you know, trying to get a decision and a purchase during this time. But if you, if that's the approach you're going, the message is, so I think about when, when, when times are good, the value is more about like how much you can gain. And when times are bad like this, the value is more about how little can you lose. And so that's the key switch I'll, uh, that I'm seeing and that I'm, I, I'm recommending. If, you're gonna, if you want to sell within this time period right now, then your message should change to not that you're going to be amazing, but that things won't be as bad. Like they won't be so terrible. They'll only be like slightly terrible. And this is kind of part of your X, Y paradox theory also, but the opposite. Yeah, strange enough. That, it comes like in even, I never would have guessed this would be the time yeah. that it comes into play a lot, but it does. Yeah. Uh, and it also sounds realistic, right? And, and easy to adopt. So uh, dude, we could do, we'll have to get you back on again in the future. And we could do a whole episode on sales decks. It sounds like, sure, um, yeah. but, uh, okay. So before you take off though, um, the big thing that I took from this is not being so dramatic with the change that you're making and really kind of tee up the problem a little bit more and get them to agree with you first on how things are in the present. 
I really like yeah. that because then, and then you're not doing something where you're going through a sales process with someone and you think that you're on the same page and you find out at the end that you're not right. It's kind of safe yeah, exactly. surprises, but, um, okay. So before you take off though, what is the, uh, what's an outbound play? I always like to ask people what's an outbound play that either you like to run or that you recommend to your clients that you see working really well to get appointments. Um, I think if you do research on the person and make the subject line of your email, something that's not necessarily like business related, like an email that I sent out recently that got a really good response was the title of it was Kanye SoundCloud rappers and hummus. Cause those were three things that were mentioned in this person's LinkedIn profile. They're not going to, there's no chance in hell. They do not click and open that email. <laughs> right. And then the email has to like correlate with what you've just said in the subject line. So I think like that level of personalization to the person uh, and something that they may be interested in goes a long way towards getting someone to open and then watch her respond. Uh, and then also, I mean, not everyone can pull this off, but I know I can is, you know, I've had the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air remix video going out to people um, for like, I don't know, 10 months now. Um, and it, it led me to my biggest customer, which is pretty cool that it literally it started and it was through LinkedIn, right? They got it. They got a message from me on LinkedIn being like, Hey, great to meet. Here's a quick intro of me. And it's me rapping the fresh Prince of Bel Air, but about what I do. Uh, and, and the cool thing with that I've noticed with that is it really in the best way possible, it divides your audience. Some people are like, this has no place in business. And I'm like, well, you probably wouldn't like me anyways. Then, yeah. Uh, versus others. I mean, the people who like it more often than not, I, I swear to God, I don't have to ask for the meeting. They see it. I don't even put a let's meet. I think my call to action is like, what do you think? And oh, they that. are like, oh my God, this is awesome. Let's meet. When are you free? And that is like, I think the truest qualification, quote unquote, or the truest lead is when they are telling you they want to meet. Dude, I love these. Yeah, you can check these out in the show notes, by the way, but we'll create, uh, we're creating these outbound plays right now, which is like some mm-hmm. quick slides. I definitely want to create one out of that and, and highlight what you're doing because it is really creative. And it's something that I think that reps could be doing, maybe not the wrapping part, but the subject line thing. I've seen a ton of success using that technique, yeah. actually. So um, before you take off, man, this is, this is really fun. I got a lot out of it. And I think that uh, if you're listening to this, uh, there's a ton of actionable things uh, that you can do with your your uh, your prospecting. Where should people check you out? And I first, I want to say definitely make sure to listen to Raj's podcast and check out the stuff he posts uh, posts on LinkedIn. All of that stuff's really good. But where where should people go to check you out? What do you want people to uh, uh, to go to engage with you? Yeah. So and and what do you do? How do you help people too? Yeah. Uh, I help growing companies stand out to their customers and stand apart from their competitors so that their story is the only one that matters. Um, my website is startuphypeman.com. My email is Rajiv, R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm as active as anybody on that. And then uh, the podcast is just simply Startup Hype Man, the podcast. That was a fun one. One of my biggest takeaways was I really like how he talks about displacing the challenge it's been a technique I've recommended, but never really put it towards quite like that. And instead of calling out the person and saying, you have this challenge, saying people like you that I talk to have this challenge, 
And there's also a social proof element to that in that that's showing that you talk to other people like them. So I thought that was really cool. Um, before we take off, again, we launched a online community I think you'll really dig that you can check out at blissfulprospecting.com. Go to join the community. We already have several dozen people in there, and I'd love to see you in there. So if you think that being connected with other people like you and getting to learn from them from a prospecting standpoint would be helpful in getting access to a course where it really walks you through how to understand your prospect's language better, how to empathize with them more, and then how to better send, excuse me, cold outreach so that you can set meetings, I think you really dig it. So head to blissfulprospecting.com and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.